Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Volcano! 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 From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. If you're ever in the vicinity of a volcano and that volcano started to erupt, your first and probably correct instinct would be to run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. But that cannot be said for the instincts of our guests today, each of whom have built careers around visiting and observing active volcanoes. You'll hear how David Garcia uses the heat of Guatemala's Pacaya volcano to serve up his signature volcanic pizza, and you'll meet Professor Leif Karlstrom, who combines his love for geology and music to compose symphonies from the sounds of volcanic eruptions. But first, we'll talk to award-winning photographer Brad White, who spent years visiting volcanoes around the world, risking his life to get the perfect, mesmerizing shot. Like a retired superhero, Brad White doesn't do that kind of stuff anymore. He's a grade school teacher now in Auckland, New Zealand, but in his previous life, he was lost in his longing to lock his lens upon lava. So, what's Brad's earliest memory of volcanoes? I lived during my my early years in Rotorua, uh, which is uh, in New Zealand, and it smells like rotten eggs. Hmm. Of course, I've lived there um, for many years, and you just don't notice a smell until you go away and come back. Do you like eggs, rotten or not? <laughs> well, considering free-range eggs are getting really, really expensive, uh, yeah, it, which is which is funny because when I have gone to volcanoes as I grow up, yeah, it's that familiar smell, which is um, quite nice and settling. So you have grown up around volcanoes and their rotten, eggy smell. Why did you start photographing volcanoes? I was a press photographer in Taranaki, which there is the Maunga Taranaki, with the Mount Taranaki, um, which we all lived under, um, which is a dormant volcano, um, which might. It's overdue waking up. And every day you woke up, it was a clear sky, you would you'd see the volcano. It was just always there. And I sort of wanted to move into a... Um, Go go from press photography into broadcast news, and I met a guy called Jeff Mackley, who was just in love with volcanoes, and we built up a really good friendship. Um, and um, I started shooting news with him in Auckland, and we you know we started traveling around the world, chasing tornadoes and typhoons and tsunamis and. Yeah, and it just volcanoes was just a natural part of that. Um, generally, we got to the stage if people were running away, we were heading into that direction. We used to joke that we were volcano chasers, but as my partner would say, they're not going anywhere. And I was, well, it, it gives you the opportunity to catch up to them uh, a lot easier when they're not going anywhere. But I caught up with a um, another 
press cameraman and we started working together and he had an idea of going into volcanoes and filming them and then just sort of using the footage from that to help us get to another one and I was extremely comfortable in volcanoes and we were very very successful um, when we started out so um, I think he had been trying before me and um, he wasn't successful into getting to the lava lake at Murrum until um, I joined the team and from there we just started going to volcanoes around the world sounds really really weird but it was just you know i i've been around volcanoes um i've always been intrigued i i guess it's part of get, trying to get that dopamine hit you know i've had roles where it's basically a whole dump of adrenaline and and it was it was quite exciting um going to these places where people would not venture to um and would run away yet millions of people around the world depend on volcanoes and the fertile soils to survive so on one way i was going into an area you know there's only a few of us that were going to it so it, it sort of allowed myself to get photos that were a little bit unique and a little bit different you've talked about each volcano having its own energy i'd love to hear about what you mean by that and which volcano's energy captivated you <sighs> Well, I guess every single volcano that you go to has that personality. Um, it all depends where in the world it is, what's around it, um, the communities, the culture, the people that live around it. That all influences the area. When you get up and you get close or you get inside, each volcano is different. You know, there are families of volcanoes. Each one has little personalities that you notice when you're there for a long time. Um, Murram, which is a which was a volcano in in Ambram in Vanuatu, which had a lava lake, it was just this immense power, this immense source of energy just coming out of that volcano. And when you when you look in, you know, it's it's got this um its own environment. It's, it's microclimate because of the, the toxic gases that are coming out of it uh, constantly. Five days out of every seven, it was pouring with rain up there. Um, you had Pele hairs, um, which is fine bits of almost like glass um, floating down. Can I stop you right there and ask about how you protect yourself? Because I imagine going up to a volcano and what you just said, it sounds like you could really get hurt. How do you protect yourself? Yes, you can. Well, A, when you go into a volcano, you know that you are it and your buddies around you are it if anybody does get hurt. So there's that. So if you do get hurt, yeah. But I mean, do you have like some Kevlar or something or a helmet or like an umbrella sticking out of your head or something? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's there's a company in, in New Zealand called uh, Pacific Helmets that make fireman helmets and rescue helmets. And uh, um, we went to the factory, we were shown around. They, de- they were developing a uh, rescue type helmet, which they uh, gave us a few. Does it have some cool like volcano decals on it or anything no it's as the sulfur is eating away at the um you know at the, at the metal parts of it and the, the leather is um slowly degrading but the helmet itself is nice and safe so and what about your body like a fireman's jacket or something yes and no we would have the we call it a heat suit 
or it's called a heat proximity suit. And so we would have it, it would deflect the heat so it's relatively cool. But if you didn't have that right layer on the inside, your arms would touch the surface of the jacket and it would sort of, you know, burn. We had our gas masks, which was... um, which were specific for um, the chemicals that were in the air, with visors. Um, we took all the safety gear, but I always found climbing and abseiling inside the volcano, I would get too hot wearing the gear. So I ended up just wearing, you know, a pair of like military pants that had the hard knee pads in them. Let's talk about the camera gear. How do you protect this, I'm sure, expensive, amazing machinery from melting in your hands? You say, how do I protect it? I don't think I did a very good job. Uh, I think I had one camera that I took in for repair. And when they took it apart, they described the inside as it having been flooded, that it having been underwater, that the gases from the volcano had completely sort of rusted up and and destroyed and corroded the inside of the camera. So there were things that every time I would go into a volcano, I'd learn something new about the environment and how corrosive it was. Near the, near, I think the last times I went in, I actually had waterproof bags. So I would seal it in the waterproof bags. I would carry them down just hanging off my harnesses and that would you know, keep it out of the environment for as long as possible. Then I'd take it out, do do filming. um, But, of course, you can only do filming for a certain amount of time. And this is a digital camera, right? Yes. um, I only took digital. Um, It would make sense to actually have taken film now that I think about it. Um, You're welcome. You don't want, yeah, thank you. You don't want the emotions that have been washed away. But... Yeah, I've I've had a camera where you know I was I was filming halfway inside a volcano. I was on a ledge. Um, it might have been um, I think about a hundred yards inside, and you know I quickly turned to grab another battery. And as I turned, uh, a bit of um, wind just knocked it over, and that went flying. And you know hundreds of dollars worth of batteries went flying into the volcano. Did they at least make some cool like explosion noises when they landed in the lava? <laughs> So, well, if I was that close, yeah, um, basically it would go down into the crater, uh, the, the crater floor, um, and then I'd never ever, ever see it again. Um, I've been filming on the the last edge, the Tefra Dam, before the um, you know the actual lava lake, and you could only film for a very short amount of time. That particular camera, the LCD screen started to smoke or started to steam up, and the back of it started to warp. You know, I was holding up a pretty little leather glove, a gardening glove, and I was trying to hold it over in front of the, the camera to stop that direct heat. <laughs> yeah, so, of course, you can only do this for a very short short time. How, how long are we talking? 15 minutes? The actual filming, I would be lucky to do over a minute at a time. Um, if I was able to do it from further back, I could zoom in and do it longer. But when I was on the craters, sorry, when I was on the Tefra Dam edge, you know, we're talking about lava that is coming out at 1200 degrees Celsius. Um, yeah, so it destroys everything. And I'm pretty sure it's destroyed part of my body as well. Right. Well, that was my next question. Did you ever get hurt? Yes, I did get hurt. Tell me about it. The, the first time I ever got burnt inside a volcano, 
it was from the fuel that we carried down for the the AxSafe Ascender, which was like a little mechanized winch that we would hold. It was like holding a small Honda engine and it would attach to the ropes and we would just pull ourselves up out of the volcano using these little motorized ascenders. So, of course, you had to take fuel down. This particular time, my partner who got stuck uh, climbing inside, I had to go up, take his backpack off him, and I clipped that backpack to myself. His fuel wasn't in the aluminium cans. It was in a drink bottle. And it was put on the side and it poured throughout my groin. And I was halfway inside this volcano trying to work out what this warm sensation in my groin was. It wasn't a good sensation. And it took a few seconds to realize that it was fuel. And of course, I was stuck there. I had a harness which kept it all pulled inside. And I basically, it took 40 minutes to get out of the volcano and start washing myself down at the campsite that we had at the top of the volcano. So you had fuel leaking onto your groin yes. as you are working your way out of a volcano. Yes. And then luckily it was raining for most of that week and I was able to recover purely because I had pretty much like second degree burns on my uh, inner thighs, which, yes, I was wearing a lava lava which I'm not sure you know, if you know what a lava. A lava lava? Yes, a lava lava is basically like a just a piece of material, like wearing a towel at the beach. So you wrap yourself around with the lava lava. So I was airing myself out, um, replacing my uh, dressings twice a day, waiting for the rain to stop. The part that was injured the most was where the harness was because that was on my thighs. That's where the petrol had pulled and I was rubbing as I was climbing and getting out. Yeah. So when I get got to the top, I just basically stripped off and and and, and, and just washed myself with as, as much water as I could. The world's most dangerous nudist resort. Yes. Um, and um, other times I've been inside and uh, obviously you've been you're you're inside a crater that not many people have been inside. A lot of them only we had been inside. So if somebody else is coming down above you, it knocks those rocks down. And so you're watching, you know, these mini missiles coming, shooting past you. I think the worst one was I, I was hit in my shoulder as I was trying to move to a safe spot. And I'm pretty sure that I had a bit of a, um, a fracture that took um, quite a few weeks. But uh, we were up there and we were stuck and there was there was no help. So it was basically, you know, a bit of um, paracetamol and uh, and ibuprofen and and that was it. We are talking to you because you take great pictures of volcanoes. So what makes a great volcano picture? Okay, I think what makes a great volcano picture is being in a position where not many people are able to get that shot. And with volcanoes, it means getting inside and getting up and as close as possible to that lava. You know, I take a photograph. Do I like it? Yeah, I'll take another one. So it's just trying it and redoing it and trying different times. Um, one of the, the the closest calls I had uh, was inside Murrum Volcano, where I was um, just down inside the volcano by myself. I'm, I'm pretty sure that the uh, 
is it the Tor- Toronto Needle? Is that, is that the 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 Space Needle in Seattle? Yes. How does it say how tall it is? Uh, well, since we're pre-taped, and I can look this up. <laughs> hold on. How tall is Seattle Space Needle? Six hundred five feet tall. Feet out. Okay. What's that in meters? Oh, six oh five two meters. 184 meters. Okay. So the Murrum Volcano, which was the first crater that I ever got down to the crater floor, the Space Needle could fit in there with another, I would say, 200 feet to spare. And you're alone. Yeah, it's just a little ant at the bottom. And I could, you know, every now and again, you would look up and you would see somebody peering over the crater's edge. And one of these times, I'd actually taken a um, microbiologist down. I gave him my heat suit jacket um, because, you know, I'll, I'll protect him rather than myself because I... I... Chivalrous <laughs> of you, Brad. <laughs> well, it, I always found that I'd get too hot. Ironically, I would get too hot. I would sweat, sweat too much um, and then I'd need twice as much water. So I would climb down with the minimum gear, um, the safety um, helmet, the visor, the gloves, the boots and the gas mask. And this time um, he was searching for um, new lava bombs that had had come out because he wanted to see what sort of life was there, what sort of uh, microbiomes. Extremophiles. Well, possibly. I'll just nod my head and say <laughs> yes. Um, so he was there and he was in the water course out of my view. So I went to the edge and I started filming away. I put the GoPro going and I had my camera and a tripod and I was filming away. And this particular time, the volcano was so active. Um, the lava lake was a lot higher than usual. And it was just like this angry, you know, we're, we're talking about different personalities. She was very angry. And I was watching it bubble and trying to get this footage. And I just heard this whooshing sound as the lava went up, it dropped, and then it spat out and shot spatter over me. And it was enough time for me to realize what was happening. And I thought, oh, great, this is going to hurt. Um, And it went flying over me. I only got hit with one small bit of spatter and it hit my hand. And because of the sweat, it just bounced off and felt like a mosquito sting. And I was half expecting, you know, it to burn through my my bag and my, my, my shirt and it missed me. I saved the, maybe the hardest question for the end. Um, which of the 16 volcanoes that you photographed was the most freaking awesome? The most freaking no, did I get that accent right? No, the most it's freaking, freaking, yeah, that's it. Freaking. Okay, you could do you could do freaking or freaking, freaking, but there's no R rolling. No. Okay, the most amazing volcano that I had ever been inside was Nyiragongo, and that is over 500 meters inside to get to that crater floor, and I made that descent twice. It was awe-inspiring the power it was the the largest volcano or the um i think the 
the largest in circumference in the world uh, that was still active. And there were like three different levels to the volcano when you're inside it. And to be the only one there, the adrenaline going through, it was an amazing experience. I try to describe that I'm walking over thin crusts of lava and some of that is breaking underfoot. Uh, it's so hard to ex- yeah to to explain, but we know what it smells like. We we do, and and that that volcano, you know, others had been there um, in the past, and it. So in, in that ex- aspect, it wasn't a unique place I'd been to, but you know, having it's such a difficult place to get to, you know, to get to uh, the Congo, we had to fly into Ethiopia and then we had to um, go through the border and pay a lot of money to be there. We had to have a lot of fixes. We had to have safety, you know, a security team um, just to get there. The United Nations, um, they helped us to a certain point. We had um, some very crazy uh, Ukrainian pilots who tried to fly us up and one thing you don't want is a whiteout when you're flying near a volcano. And um, there was apparently a lot of chatter in the cockpit talking about where we are and what we're doing. And we we came out of that um, unscathed. And there, there were rebels out there. United Nations were protecting um, uh, the population. So it was a very difficult place to, to get to. The first time I went to the Congo, I said I'd never, ever do it again. Um, the second time I was like, why am I here? But that particular time was when I was able to get inside the volcano, get some amazing footage. Well, kakite, Brad, wait. I, lo- I, I love that. Kakite no. Thank you, Kayone. We'll have links to some of Brad's beautiful photos at ctpublic.org slash audacious. When we get back, why did Leif Karlstrom and his team turn 10 years of volcanic data into music? We're trying to piece together a story. So listening to it sometimes gives you new insights as to what processes might be responsible for the signals you see. Plus, how one pizza chef became inspired to move his kitchen into a location with a little more heat. It started when I saw the volcano to begin with. So one day I decided something beautiful can happen here. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Oh, no. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the Go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to Hartford for recovery. 
For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're meeting people who take their love of volcanoes to new heights, or depths. Later, you'll meet a guy who cooks pizzas in a volcanic cave. But right now, I want you to relax, take a deep breath, and listen to what 10 years of One Volcano's activity data sounds like condensed into a three-minute-long song. It's called Hotel Kilauea. Leif Karlstrom is a volcanologist, musician, and associate professor of earth sciences at the University of Oregon, and this music is thanks to him and his team at the Volcano Listening Project. Leif got the idea after talking with Ben Holtzman, a colleague who was producing music-like audio from recordings of earthquakes. Now, when you think about the sounds a volcano makes, rumbling, spurting, lava flow probably come to mind, but that's not exactly what you're hearing. So... What kind of sounds is he interpreting here? So, of course, volcanoes do make sounds that we can hear, but the human auditory band is is sort of pathetically small, right? We can hear between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz, roughly, about three orders of magnitude, and a variety of signals um, happen outside that band. So the volcano is making sounds of all kinds, some of them directly sort of hearable if you were to speed it up or slow it down. Um, and so some of what I do is simply that, right? Like if you if you measure seismic shaking of the ground at a, at a volcano, um, that typically occurs below the auditory bands, but it's an oscillatory waveform. So you could simply speed it up uh, and then you can directly hear it. Um, sometimes we might be interested in, in ultrasonic um, frequencies. And in that case, you slow it down. But that's, that's a particular type of data, and there are other things that are happening at volcanoes that we might want to listen to, um, which are not simply like oscillatory, like waveforms. And then we have to make other choices about how we turn that into sound. So for those who may be hearing the music that you've made, and we'll play some clips, um, they may think, oh, that's, well, that's interesting, or that's cool. So what? So what? What do we learn from this music? <laughs> First of all, it might be enough to just sort of say, that's cool. And that's sort of the whole point, actually. That's what music does. You say, hey, that's really cool. I'm moved by this. Um, And that's a whole part of the this volcano listening project is actually just making music from volcanic data. If if you listen to classical music, you've probably listened to like Vivaldi's Four Seasons. Probably, you know, Vivaldi wasn't taking data about winter and spring. Um, as he was composing this music, he was simply just inspired by them, right? Um, and so I think that's the completely valid reason to do this. It is a valid question what you learn from a scientific perspective <laughs> here. Actually, what we're doing by um, listening to data is we're sort of seeing that data in a new way or hearing that data in a new way, as the case may be here. Anytime you experience data in a new way, you get new ideas particularly for complex data that are so common in earth systems. A volcano is something that we don't get to see inside, right? All the dynamics are are hidden beneath the surface and 
usually on time scales that are not on human scales, right? Like a, a major volcanic cycle, not uncommon for it to be hundreds or thousands of years even between big eruptions. Volcanoes are, are very complex earth systems that involve, you know, the melting of rocks deep in the mantle, the ascent and the chemical evolution of that magma as it ascends through the crust. And then a final progression through the surface off Sometimes driven by bubbles, and that happens on a very short time scale, but it reflects this long history, right? And we have not been measuring that history. So we're only seeing very indirectly the dynamics that are going on, um, which means that you know we're data limited. We don't we don't have all the information. And all the different data streams that we gather around volcanoes are telling us slightly different indirect things, and we're trying to piece together a story. So listening to it sometimes gives you new insights as to what processes might be responsible for the signals you see. So you think it's possible that the sounds and the musical interpretations of them could be part of understanding the life cycle and maybe the predictive nature of volcanoes if there is such a thing? Yeah. I mean, I think the example that I'll give for that is an analog system we, we generally try to find analogs because of this fact that volcanoes operate outside of human timescales. Um, and it so happens that a lot of the dynamics in volcanic eruptions are also at play in geysers. So we have, for example, studied uh, a geyser at Yellowstone National Park called Lone Star Geyser that um, erupts really regularly, like every three hours and has been doing so for at least 100 years. Um, people document this. Um, a whole community called the geyser gazers that do this um, um so we know this geyser has been very regular and we went out and instrumented it with all the same in instruments that we use at real volcanoes and gathered a bunch of time series um, now we know sort of why geysers erupt but there are still open questions there too what are the physical processes that are involved in the geyser eruption cycle and so we we turn that data into sound and there is a great example. You have these different data streams that are each sort of probing different aspects of the system. You know, I had a data stream that was sort of capturing when water was coming out of the geyser vent, um, and it does so in you know a pretty complex way. I have a data stream that tells you how the data, uh, the ground around the geyser is is deforming, and then you have uh, a seismometer that's telling you um, high frequency vibrations that are tracking sort of bubbles bursting and, and water moving in the subsurface. And those things are interacting in a really complex way to tell the story of how the eruption cycle happens. So uh, by sonifying it, you, you hear the relationship between these, these things. And it's, that's, that's a research topic, right? We published a couple of, of research papers on this using you know, traditional or more traditional techniques. Um, but you could just directly hear that. And we could have saved ourselves a lot of time if we'd started with the sonification. I'd love to hear you talk about the creation of, of Hotel Kilauea. Uh, I think that would maybe give people a good example for what we're talking about, what it sounds like. And if you could kind of in a nutshell, explain the process of how that was made, if there is even a nutshell version of it. Yeah. So so Hotel Kilauea is a great example of of this sort of crossover between arts <laughs> or music making and, and data. The data that are behind it um, reflect the opening phase of uh, an eruption at Kilauea Volcano in, in Hawaii that uh, actually spans a decade. So in 2008, a crater opened at Kilauea Summit um, that then hosted a lava lake for the next 10 years until 2018 when the whole summit collapsed. And, and that eruption probably people have some familiarity with because the eruption started with a 
a lava flow or a, a new new vent that opened in a neighborhood on the lower east rift zone of Kilauea volcano. But along with that, there was a collapse of the summit of the volcano, and that lasted several months and sort of ended that eruptive episode. But it started way back in 2008, um, and even prior to that, with a change in the influx, we think, of, of magma um, coming in at depth, sort of originating in the mantle. So the data that we, we used for that Hotel Kilauea track sort of essentially document the building up to that point. Um, where the crater opens. And so there's there's different data sets that are that are being represented there. One is the sort of slow, gradual deforming of the volcano summit. And we mapped that onto pitches that are sort of sliding up and down in response to the ground going up and down. There are then more rapid deformation events that are also sort of pulse-like. They're ground deformation, they call them deflation, inflation events that um, are likely linked to magma sort of moving around between subsurface reservoirs um, at the summit. And then finally, there's a data set associated with gas release at the surface. And that only happened as the eruption was kind of kicking off. And so you have this gradual building that culminated in the opening of the crater and the start of this big decade-long eruption. So again, three different sort of voices. We sonified them in different ways. And that was the data side of things. We then took that track. So three voices and um, gave it to some musicians, I guess myself included. And we we then sort of improvised to this. So treated it in that case, took off my science hat altogether and just asked, what can we make of this musically? Um, and it ends up being, I would say, you know, a bit of avant-garde music <laughs> in some sense, right? It's, it's free improvisations, free jazz in some sense. Um, we had some constraints that we talked about beforehand in terms of a melodic framework or harmonic framework that we were going to use. Um, but more or less, we're, we're reacting to the sounds that were made by the volcano in this case, and to each other. And so the volcano just becomes another, another player, another, another voice in the composition. And so from that standpoint, uh, just as just as a, a piece of improvisation that we made. In this piece, you have two violins, a stand-up bass, and a guitar. Why not a marimba or a toy piano or a pipe organ? Mm. Yeah, I don't play those. <laughs> <laughs> but is it, I mean, we could maybe have like a volume two, a remix. If there was a remix of Hotel Kilauea, what would you like? It would perhaps EDM, 8-bit, trap? yeah. I think it, that's the beautiful thing about this this sort of approach is that um, others can reinterpret it, um, and I would love to see some some other people do this. I'll say that we have been building out other examples of of this kind of performance to volcanic data. It's it's a project that's in the works now. I'm actually mostly done with it, and and so we have. I guess 12 or 13 different examples of volcanic sonifications that I've done this with, not necessarily playing myself, but giving to other people. And so we have everything from uh, from steel guitar. Um, somebody did a sort of uh, composed a poem and sang a poem over one of these things. Um, just a wide variety of different interpretations. And the point there, again, is is purely aesthetic, right? What kind of music can you create and be inspired by? This, this sort of volcanic data source. 
Um, it turns out volcanic data has a very musical structure often, right? There's a, a natural arc of, of tension and release involved in a volcanic event, um, which lends itself quite well to music. What's the difference between a volcano that makes music that kind of sounds like a horror movie, which uh, Hotel Kilauea sounds like, and maybe something that sounds a little more hopeful or gentle or funny? I guess there's a couple of parts to that. Um, there are some choices that we made in the sonification that lend themselves to a particular musical interpretation. And, and specifically, I'm referring to the choice of scale that was used to sonify some of the data. So the choice that we made for the ground deformation data was to map to what's called a diminished or uh, octatonic scale, which is the most symmetric musical scale that exists. It's a whole step followed by a half step followed by a whole step followed by a half step followed by a whole step. It's the least biased, I guess, uh, of any musical scale. So from the sonification perspective, that's actually quite important to me that I'm not introducing artificial biases in the data. But as a result, the diminished scale actually is a bit of an ominous sounding scale. Uh, it's it's often used in, in jazz, but is not a um it's not common in like our traditional idioms of of Western classical music or pop music for that matter. Right. So so right off the top of the, the thing, you're you're given a, a a track that sounds a little bit dark. Um, and then we chose to improvise in a diminished scale as well, right? To match match that. So there are examples, and we've done this, where we we make different choices about the scales that are used. If I used a Lydian scale or a mode um, as opposed to an octatonic scale, that actually has a much more hopeful <laughs> uh, connotation to it, and the resulting music has that that vibe to it as well. So it's it's composition practice just like any composer does i suppose leaf carlstrom thank you so much for talking with me of course my pleasure thanks for having me we'll have a link to more music from leaf and his team at the volcano listening project at ctpublic.org audacious after the break does anybody want to grab some pizza on an active volcano i'm buying one time i was serving the pizza and I gave it to my customer, and then the volcano decided to randomly explode. Okay, this pizza may require travel insurance. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. You might be in for a big surprise When you're living on a volcano When's it gonna blow? Yes, I'd like to order a medium pizza with pepperoni and extra onions. Oh, and I'd like it well done, please. Pick up. Oh, wait, is this the pizza joint in Guatemala where everything is cooked using the heat from flowing lava on top of the Pacaya volcano? Do you do delivery? Okay, let me call you back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. And if you have a hankering for pizza that's been cooked inside a volcano, there's really only one guy you want to order from. David Garcia has been slinging pies on top of Guatemala's Pacaya volcano since 2013. And at first, business was 
slow as a dormant volcano's lava flow. But now, after repeatedly going viral, business is nonstop, like a very active volcano's lava flow. Reservations were full every single day last year. I asked David to talk about how all this came to be, and we are grateful to Miguel Martinez for interpreting for us. Bueno, eh, yo tengo un restaurante antes de empezar con la pizzería y desde pequeño me ha gustado mucho la, la cocina. He sido so I've actually always loved cooking since I was little. And um, I have my own restaurant. It started when I saw the volcano to begin with. And I saw guys that they roasted marshmallows there. So one day I decided something beautiful can happen here. And for the first few days, I would go down and I would make pizza for myself personally. So not for any customers or any restaurant, just for myself. I bet that this was not something that you just figured out one day and then a pizza came out perfectly. So talk about the process, the trial and error that went into making the perfect volcanic pizza. Let me start by saying that there is no manual on how to make a volcanic pizza. I made the manual. It took me five years of practice of making pizza in different types of ovens. So I started with a very extremely hot, hot, hot oven that uh, had like fumes of sulfur. And then I started with a different type of oven that steam came out of it. It was a steam oven instead. And that was the hardest one because it was perfect to make vegetables where they would be bo boiled instead. But the pizza would not come out golden how it should come out. So it took me a long, long five years of practice on how eating different types of pizza uh, made from the volcanoes and tasting it with the sulfur to see how the people would react to eating them, testing it on myself. And at some point, I used the lava itself where I put the pizza on the lava and I would w go downstairs or go down rather the volcano and wait until the pizza slowly with the lava went down while it cooked until it got to the place I was. And then I would taste it to see if it needed anything. It needed more cooking, etc. How does your pizza, cooked on a volcano, taste different than any other pizza in the world? So the first thing you're going to feel once you put it in your mouth is an explosion of flavor. This pizza is absolutely nothing like a pizza that is from the store. And the reason is because of the way that the volcano has to be an exact temperature and takes the, an exact amount of length too. So in a cave, because there's steam coming out from the ovens in there, the whole cave ends up being covered in water. So it's dripping water. I combine wood to make fire with, firewood, and I combine carbon as well, as if I was making a grill. And that actually dries up the cave because it turns out that the volcano is always blowing air. So it does it, in it on its own. So it mixes all of those in the, on the dough. By the way, the dough it's all made by ourselves by, by hand. And they're what we call mother dough because we keep the doughs resting for about four days before we do anything with it. And it doesn't come from any store. So we make it ourselves and we marinate it. And then they also absorb all the, the fumes from the volcano, plus the firewood, plus the carbon. Very distinct. When I think about being on a volcano, I think... Well, that's very dangerous. Is it dangerous? 
Well, I have two stories. One of them, I was with a family and the volcano started acting weird. And you get to know volcanoes while being there for so long. So I told my partners, pick up your stuff and let's go. And the mother asked why. And I said, please just trust me, let's go. So we ended up walking away. And as soon as we got to the safe place, the volcano exploded. And there was rocks going all around us. And the kids went, we're like, oh, no, we're going to die. And he's like, no, don't worry. We're in a safe area. So uh, that's one of the stories. Uh, the other story was that one time I was serving the pizza. And I gave it to my customer. And then the volcano decided to randomly explode. And when it exploded, there was ash falling all over us like snow. But we're always paying attention to how it's going and if there's any volcanic activity so that we avoid days that there are volcanic activities and it's more active. That way, we can either postpone the reservations people have um, made with us or cancel them, depending on if it's very active or not, so we don't risk our lives. When I look at your Instagram, I see, oh, so many people who come to visit and order pizza how many people would you say you serve in a typical week? And what are these people like? Who are they? Where are they from? Tell me everything. It completely varies. It depends on season. We get from 200 to 300 on low amounts. And then on higher amounts, we get from 300 to 400. It really depends. Um, a lot of the people that come are students of volcanology uh, from the U United States. Uh, so they, the school sends them on a trip and they end up because there's a lot of volcanoes here in, in Guatemala and they end up coming to my volcano to get some pizza and, and see how study how pizza can be made on a volcano. Another thing that I've seen a lot of is businesses. So big businesses, there was a pharmaceutical business uh, that is worldwide that sent one people from 88 different places on uh, the world to enjoy some pizza, volcanic pizza. And then on top of that, I also seen people from Africa, from Russia, from the United States, from Canada, from islands I've never even knew existed. I've never even heard before. They come from everywhere around the world and mostly from the United States. A regular size pizza is $35. A larger one is $55. Is that still the price? Yes. Now, there is a possibility that when lava starts seeping out, the price is going to go up, but I'm not sure yet. Have you ever had anybody react to the price and be like, ugh, too expensive? So I've gotten a range of people. I've gotten the absolutely not. In America, it's only $7. Why would I pay $35 for a small pizza? So people that are mostly offended are Italians. <laughs> Italians <laughs> come here and they're like, how could you sell pizza for $35, this so, so, so small pizza, when in Italia, it's only seven euros. How could you do this? And then I got this one person who commented, this is absolutely blasphemy to what we do. The reason is we created pizza. So you come up with this insane, crazy pizza idea, which is genius. You turn our culture around and then you present it to the world and it's accepted. And then there's other people that come and they're like, this is absolutely too expensive, but I want to taste it. I think it's worth it because it's the only volcanic pizza in the world. And then they said, they say that they have never tasted a more amazing pizza ever in their lives. 
Now you have spent so long perfecting the recipe, perfecting the methods by which you cook your pizza. But that being said, is there any other volcano that would be so much fun to cook a pizza on? Yes. In fact, I'm actually planning on going through all of Central America to Italy in one volcano each to make one or two pizzas for each country that I pass by to get to until I get to Italy. Take one or two videos and then keep going until I get to Italy, make a pizza for them with one of the volcanoes and then get out of there running. <laughs> <laughs> so after you finish making pizza on other people's volcanoes in other countries. What next? Would you like to try cooking different dishes? What What would you like to do after you dominate the volcanoes in your area? And then of course, in Italy. Logistically, it's extremely hard to get the right ingredients for other foods to be cooked in volcanoes. So I don't think that I'll risk that. But for long term, what I'm thinking of doing is opening many Pizza, uh, Pacaya Pizzas, pizzerias. Now with the with the name Pacaya Pizzas from Guatemala. So born in Guatemala and then spreads around the world so that everyone can have at least or uh, have access to volcanic pizza where, wherever they are without having to come all the way to Guatemala. So in long term, I'm definitely thinking of expanding to reach out to the world in that sense. David Garcia y Miguel Martinez, gracias por hablar conmigo. De nada. Muchas gracias. Audacious is always lovingly produced by Khalil Rahman, Jessica Severin de Martinez, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. If you like this episode, you might like the one we did featuring people who fly into hurricanes and chase tornadoes. Or for something completely different, find the one we did about what it's like having persistent genital arousal disorder. You can hear them all on your favorite podcast app. Stay in touch with me on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Kion Wolf. And you can always send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. Uno, dos, tres, four.